Let's give our attention to Ezra chapter 4. Please turn to Ezra chapter 4. And we're going to read the entire chapter. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabeel, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is re rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter, why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Father, please bless the preaching of the word today, Lord, and the hearing of the word and the believing of your word. Send your Holy Spirit to apply it to each heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You may or may not know that the company Amazon just recently, like in the last couple of months, 
they released the first season of a new TV show that's based on the books by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. Now, this is noteworthy for a couple of reasons, but I won't bore you with all of them. Uh, But I do find it interesting. This is apparently the most expensive television show that has ever been made. It cost over $1 billion dollars to both buy the rights to the, t- the TV rights to the show and then also make season one. So I'm not going to pause here and explore the ramifications for the American people that we're spending a billion dollars on one TV show, but I do encourage you to meditate on that in your spare time. Um, the drama of this first season comes primarily from two plot devices that they put into season one. And the first is that in the early episodes, the good guys, the the elves, they don't believe that they have any enemies left. They think all the enemies are gone. And so they start making decisions based on that belief. They reduce their defenses, and then they take their great commander, Galadriel, who was, who was responsible for hunting down the remnant of their enemies, and they tell her, hey, your job is done. There's no one left to hunt. These are days of peace. Let's all celebrate. So they make these decisions, but unbeknownst to them, the evil is not gone. The enemy is still alive. And while they reduce their defenses and shrink back and pretend there's no enemy, the enemy's power is growing. Now, the second aspect is that even when the elves start to see that something is wrong, something is off, they still don't know who the enemy is. And that's part of the drama of the whole first season is we don't know who's the bad guy, who's Sauron. We know Sauron's the bad guy because Lord of the Rings is going to tell us Sauron's the guy, we've got to get him. But the whole season draws it out. Who's the bad guy? And if you haven't seen it yet, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Um, But suffice it to say that this is true for us as well. This is true for the church as well. If we act as if there's no enemy, if we pretend that what it means to become a Christian is that days are rosy and nothing will ever go bad again and we'll never face resistance or opposition, then we will make poor decisions about how to prepare ourselves in this life. You see, if we think that there are no enemies, then when opposition comes, then we're going to be easily discouraged. We're going to be easily frustrated. We'll be far more likely to give up. We must plan with the knowledge that there's an enemy. So like J.R.R. Tolkien himself wrote, it does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Friends, we live near a dragon. That's the point of Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 is about enemies. It's about opposition. And the point of Ezra chapter 4 might be summarized this way. The people of God must expect opposition and persevere in the work of the Lord. We must expect opposition, because if we don't, we won't be prepared for it. If we do, we'll give ourselves a chance to continue on in the work of the Lord that all too often is resisted, is unpopular in this world. Our text gives us three main points today. Point number one, enemies in disguise. That's verses one through three. Point number two, the dangers of discouragement, verses 4 and 5 and 24. And point number three, a call to perseverance, verses 6 to 23. Let's jump right in to point number one. Now, uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, they pick right up where we left off next week. So we're, I mean, last week. So you remember last week, the, the exiles, the first wave of exiles, have returned from Babylon, and they are trying to rebuild the temple. Uh, so they've, they've just arrived in Jerusalem less than a year prior to the events of chapter 4, uh, probably about 537 or 538 B.C., and they've, they have now made some progress on the temple. They have laid the foundation. Now, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, though, the tone changes 
There's a turning point here. And it's going to introduce, the, the author is going to introduce a major theme that's going to run right through the rest of the book of Ezra and all the way through the book of Nehemiah. So we, we have to pay careful attention to chapter 4 if we're going to understand the drama and the tension for the rest of these two books of the Bible. Look with me at verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, now stop there. This word adversaries is going to set the tone for the whole chapter okay the author is starting off strong chapter 4 verse 1 these people are adversaries look at verses 2 and 3 though these people they approach Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses they approach the leaders of the exiles and what do they say they say let us build with you for we worship your God as you do and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses, what they said was, oh, that would be great. This is a huge job. We've just been waiting for someone to offer to help us. Please come on in. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's not how it goes. This is how they respond. The leaders of the people say, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, we need to pause. We need to make sure, we need to make doubly sure that we understand what's going on here, who these people are, and why did the people of God reject their offer of help? You see, understanding who these people are and the threat they represent to God's people, it, it, it's kind of a key to understanding the whole book of Ezra. In just a couple of chapters, Ezra the man, the priest, is going to come on the scene, and then he's going to spend three chapters of his book dealing with the problem of intermarriage with these very people. So if we believe that this was a genuine offer of help from people who truly want to worship the God of Israel, that's going to change our whole interpretation of the book of Ezra. Do you see that? Do you see the line here? If these people are just honestly wanting to help and worship the Lord, and the leaders of Israel were like, get away from us, we don't want your help, well, what does that make the people of God here? Are they, are they racist? Are they bigots? Are they just saying, you look different than us? You're, you're not part of our team. You're not part of our group. Get away, we don't want to work with you. Is that, is that how we ought to understand the book of Ezra? Now, that is, the, that is the reason. Now, but, but if they are truly enemies, it's going to color the whole interpretation. So we have to study this chapter carefully to see what evidence we find about who these people are and what their background is. And we already read Ezra 1.1. It calls them adversaries. Now, is this just poetic license? Is this an author who's trying to look back into his people's history and paint them in the best light possible? Sometimes when the Bible gives us a historical narrative, it tells us the story, but it doesn't give us God's perspective on the story. It, it, it doesn't make a judgment about the moral right or wrong that's going on, this, on in the story. And in those situations, we have to be very careful about drawing moral conclusions about what the story is saying. But, but in this case, the divinely inspired author says something here. It doesn't just say the people came and offered help. It said the enemies came and offered help. And when the Bible calls someone enemies, we're, we're not at liberty to say, well, maybe they aren't. So verse number one, I, I really think ought to be enough for all of us. But as we keep reading, the author wants to give us even more background on who these people are. In, verses, in verse 4, he calls them the people of the land. In verse 10, we get a little bit more information. They're the people from the cities of Samaria. And then in verse 2 and 10, we get a really important piece of information. These people were deported to Samaria by two separate Assyrian kings. And we're, we're fortunate because we can read about, about that account in 2 Kings chapter 17. So if you have your Bible and you want to flip back a couple of books to 2 Kings 17 and starting in verse 24. 2 Kings 17, 24. 
And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of, God, of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them of the law of the God of the land. That sounds promising. Let's see how it goes. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashimah, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. These people were so wicked that even though they weren't part of God's covenant people, that they, they were, represented such a danger to God's people that, that God first sent lions among them to, to, curb, to curb the depth of the wickedness of their ways. Okay, this is, this is not the children of Israel. These are the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated in 722 B.C., and they were taken away into exile, and we never hear of the northern kingdom again. And in their place, the Assyrian Empire resettles people from all over the place into the northern kingdom, into Samaria. And these people were so wicked that God saw fit to curb their behavior with lions so that they would not infiltrate and tempt the people of the southern kingdom. That's how they started out. Okay, then... The king of Assyria was told of this, and he said, oh, this is a simple matter. You know, there's lots of gods. There's a god in every land, so let's just send someone to inform them about the local deity in Samaria so that they'll know what to do so that they can stop be, being killed by lions. You see? Okay? So they send a priest, but they send a priest from Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom had been worshiping wrong, had been worshiping false gods for generations. The northern kingdom had just gotten completely destroyed by God as an act of judgment because they were not worshiping him. So if you're going to teach them the proper way to worship the God of the Bible, a priest from the northern kingdom is not the way to do it. So they send this priest and he does exactly what you might expect. He teaches them some of the rules and regulations and rites, the formal worship of the God of the Bible, but he completely blesses their pluralism. He teaches them these things, but they continue to worship their other gods, and they think, hey, we're good. Now we know how to appease this local deity, and we're also going to keep serving all these gods from the land from which we came. These people are wholehearted, sincere pluralists. They believe that God is one God among many and that you just need to follow the rules so that you can stop being eaten by lions. This paints Ezra chapter 4 in a totally different light, does it not? Look back again at verse 2 in Ezra chapter 4. They approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God 
as you do. And, and this is the thing. In their minds, that was 100% true. For over 100 years now, they've been trying to appease the God of Israel and worship all their other gods at the same time. So they think, this is a no-brainer. We ought to work together. We've been worshiping your God for a long time. We can help. We have resources. But there's a problem. The King of kings and Lord of lords is not one among many gods. He's not a lowercase g god of one region. He is the I am, the Alpha and the Omega, and he will not give his glory to another. You see, for for Zerubbabel and Jeshua to have extended the hand of friendship to these people, to say, come build with us, come worship with us, this would have been to compromise their faith in the living God. This would have been to fall back into the very sins that led to their exile in the first place. Do you know the prophets who were sent to warn the southern kingdom before they were destroyed by Babylon? Do you know who they were? It's Isaiah, Jeremiah. Okay, go read those books. They are full of God's anger and indignation at the fact that the, the children of Israel were going through the motions in the temple to worship him while they were having their pet deities on the side. They were worshiping Baal, and then on Sunday they were going to the temple. This will not do. They were destroyed for this sin. They must not compromise with the people of the land. When Zerubbabel and Jeshua reject this offer, they are not being bigoted, they are not being racist, they are not being narrow-minded. Had they compromised, this would have been the end of the story of the children of Israel. Now let's pause here for a moment. What do we do with this? What, What about us? I think this passage could not possibly be more relevant to our day and age. Do we not live in a culture that offers partnership with the church as long as we're willing to compromise our beliefs? Currently, there, there is massive pressure to compromise what God teaches about abortion, about gender, about sexuality, among many other things. Isn't, isn't pluralism alive and well in our culture today? Aren't, aren't we told that there are many ways to get to God? And you just need to just downplay. It, look, stop shouting about your theological differences and, and just understand that everybody's honestly pursuing the same path. Isn't pluralism alive and well in our culture today? Ezra chapter 4 is saying something to us. It is calling us to stand firm It's calling us to look at what Zerubbabel did and say that was courage. That was bravery. This man will not compromise to make a cheap peace with the peoples of the land. See, we too are called to be in the world, but not of it. And there's a principle here that we have to give some time to this morning. You see, there must always be a degree of separation between God's people in the world. Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. James chapter 4 verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 1 John 2 verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Brothers and sisters, a degree of separation between us and the world is the necessary result of a holy God who is calling us, making us into a holy people. Our deepest convictions are different than the deepest convictions of one who has not yet come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is a right way and a wrong way to live out this separation with the world. We can be really belligerent about it and be jerks about it. I don't think that reflects the scripture, and in a few minutes we're going to talk about how the church ought to respond to its enemies. But in verses 1 through through 3, we are meant to see Zerubbabel making a courageous 
God-honoring, potentially very unpopular decision to protect God's people from compromising their faith. Can you imagine the normal Israelite in Jerusalem? This is a massive task. They're in a dangerous city. They've just moved a thousand miles, and now they're going to they're gonna undertake the building of the temple with no resources? Okay? And then someone comes, established peoples of the land, and they come. It, it looks like a delegation of friendship. We'll help. We have stuff. We have people. We have ha- hands. It, can't you see? I am certain that there was a faction in Israel that heard what Zerubbabel told them and said, what are you doing? You're such an idiot. Be nice. Play nice. We could get the temple built years sooner. That would have been the wrong decision. We have the same temptation today. The same temptation to create, to compromise our beliefs and create a shallow friendship with the world. Now, the people of the land, the Samaritans, they don't respond well to this. And that brings us to point number two, the dangers of discouragement. Look at verses four and five. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, put your finger on verse 5, and I want you to go to verse 24, okay? 24 of chapter 4. So they said, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until when? It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so before we tackle the the theological meaning of verses uh, 4 and 5 and verse 24, we have to understand something about what the author is doing in this chapter. Uh, The author makes a deliberate choice in verse 6 to step away from the the narrative that we've been in for the first few chapters. He steps away from the narrative about the building of the temple. And what he's going to do is he's going to look out over a hundred years of Israel's history after they returned from exile. And he's going to chronicle some things. What's happened over this hundred years? Okay, now this is really confusing for us reading in English in, in 2022. Okay, you get to verse 6, and you're like, okay, I think I'm tracking, I think I'm tracking, and then you get to verse 24, and you're like, whoa, you know, either he's got his kings out of order, or I don't understand how the Persian kings went. It gets really confusing. It would not have been as confusing to the original readers, because they understood their own timeline. They, They have a different dating method than we do. You see, in the ancient Near East, the dating method was to to date it based on the monarchy. So what you did was you said, okay, this is the reign of Josiah. And so some things happened in the second year of the reign of Josiah. And so you know the order of the kings, then you can follow the calendar in Israel's history. Okay, the the entire ancient Near East did this. So what he's going to do, you'll see, is he signals, the author signals very clearly different king, different king, different king. Verse 4, verse 5, verse verse 6, verse 7. He's going to take you through a hundred years of Israel's history, and he has a point to make. But before we can get to that point, we need to say, but but what about verses 4 and 5 and 24? Because you see, 5 ends with the reign of Darius, and in 24, he jumps back to the reign of Darius. 24 is where he picks back up the temple narrative again. So that's the natural conclusion of verse 5. A couple, a couple of pieces of evidence for this. Note the difference in kings in verse 23 and 24. In verse 23, we're talking about Artaxerxes, okay? In verse 24, we're talking about Darius. Now, Artaxerxes came to power about 20 years after Darius died, so he's jumped back. He's jumped back to Darius. Note the different construction projects. In verse 12 and 21, they're talking about city walls being built, But wait, I thought we were talking about the temple being built. Yeah, in verse 24, you notice he jumps back to the temple. Uh, The work on the house of God stopped. So we'll get back to this big hundred-year history and what the author is doing in just a second. But first, what is he doing in verses 4 and 5? Well, first, 
the people of Samaria began a fairly sophisticated campaign to sabotage the building of the temple. Did you catch that? Look at verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid. Okay, maybe there were threats of physical violence here. Uh, Maybe they cut off their supply line. You remember from from last week in chapter 3, verse 7, that the children of Israel needed supplies, and they needed supplies from the Sidonians and the Tyrians. Those people live on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So much of their supplies had to come from the coast through Samaria to Jerusalem. So it would have been really easy for the Samaritans to cut off their supply lines to make the building of the temple stop. That is one possibility. Look at verse 5. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Okay, this is the equivalent of political lobbyists who are paid to argue against the children of Israel's cause back in the capital in Babylon and Susa. Now, this is the warning for us. Look at verse 24. Then the work on the house of God stopped. It it worked. It worked. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua, when they have this, this full frontal attack, work with us, become pluralists, worship with us, they pass the test. They say, we know who you are. And we know what that would would mean. We're not going to work with you. We're not going to compromise our faith. So that didn't stop them. What, What stopped them? It was discouragement and fear. Have you ever thought about that? The children of Israel passed the first test. They didn't make an alliance with these ungodly people. But then they fell prey to simple discouragement. You see, Darius... It says the work stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius. Darius began his reign in 522 BC. So the second year of his reign would have been about 15 years after what took place in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so think about that. Now, in the, in the span of biblical history, 15 years is nothing. But think about the span of an actual human life. Think about the life of this church. What if we stopped building for 15 years. That's what happened in this generation due to discouragement and fear. Listen, at this point, no laws had been made or changed to make them stop building. No army had marched against them to make them stop building. It was the heartbreaking power, the, the, the heavy toll that discouragement and fear has on our hearts. Friends, are you familiar in your own soul with the toll discouragement can take? Have you felt that power? Do you know how easy it is to lose a month, six months, two years, not building, not leaning in? Because you're simply, if you are honest with yourself, you're discouraged. It is is discouraging to live in a land where many of our neighbors and coworkers, much of the media, might believe that you and I are bigoted or intolerant or narrow-minded. And certainly, absolutely, there are paid lobbyists in Washington and in Sacramento who are pushing for laws that contradict God's word. We face many of the same temptations that these exiles faced. And the danger is that the result would be the same, that we'll lose a decade and a half or more and we won't be building. How do we we resist the impact of discouragement? You know, the, the culture, it's like a constant stream of discouragement for the for the child of God, is it not? And the Bible is so simple, so clear. The, the answer to discouragement is the way that you and I speak to each other. Listen to just a couple of verses real fast. Hebrews chapter 3 says, But exhort one another every day. Every day. Exhort one another on Sundays. When you remember to leave a voicemail. No, no, no. <laughs> exhort one another every day as long as it is called today 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider, let's think about and meditate on how to stir one another up for love and good deeds and not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, you think the day was near for the writer of Hebrews? The day is drawing near. Okay, all the more, all the more. How much more important is encouragement today than it was that day? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. Church family, we fight discouragement with encouragement. Does it sound anticlimactic? Does it sound like surely, surely encouragement couldn't have been the thing to save the people of God from not obeying God and building the temple? Oh, but chapter 5, verse 1 begs to differ. Do you know what turned the tide? Two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, who came and encouraged the people to start building again. It was words that encouraged them to start building again. Nothing changed in the political environment. Nothing changed with Samaria. Two prophets stood up and said, don't forget your duty. Don't stop building. Get rid of this discouragement and put your hand to the plow. Folks, <laughs> courage. This, I find this to be amazing. Courage is something that we have been given the power to foster in each other. Is that incredible to you? You can influence the courage level of the people sitting around you in this room by how you talk to them, okay? If what's coming out of my mouth is a steady stream of complaining and bickering and woe is me and all this, how is that going to affect the people around me, okay? But if, if what is coming out of my mouth is God's truth, if what is coming out of my mouth is the gospel, if I can see with eyes of faith that God is at work in you, even when you can't see it, and I speak it to you, what's that going to do for you? Have you ever experienced that? We're supposed to be doing this all the time. This is how we stir up courage in each other. This is how we defeat discouragement, we fight the dragon, we fight the enemy by how we treat each other. Now we have to turn back to the confusing gap in our verses, okay? They were discouraged and they stopped building the temple, but now we have this hundred-year gap. What are we going to do with this hundred-year gap? Let's look at verses 6 to 23. You'll notice right here, so we have this succession of kings. In verse 5, we have Cyrus's reign ending, and we have the beginning of Darius, the king of Persia. In verse 6, we have Ahasuerus in the beginning of his reign. In verse 7, we have Artaxerxes. Okay, we, we have this succession of kings. And verses 6 through 23 describe a series of letters back and forth between the people of Samaria and the capital of the Persian Empire, which was actually in Susa. Okay, you might remember that from the book of Esther, where all the action takes place in Susa. Okay, so these letters are going back and forth. Now, commentators disagree whether we're looking at two letters from Samaria and one response from Artaxerxes and Susa, or three letters from Samaria. And I'll show you why they disagree. So you see in verse 6, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation. Okay, that's letter number one. Their first letter was written to Ahasuerus, a.k.a. Xerxes. We'll get back to him in a second. Letter number two, verse seven. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabeel, and the rest of their associates wrote a letter. Okay, that's letter number two, definitely. Now look at verse eight. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem. Okay, that, that probably is letter number three. And the reason we think so is because, look, there are different authors mentioned in verse 7 than there are in verse 8. So we probably have a succession of letters. These people have been pounding at the door in Susa saying, these, these Israelites are terrible. You got to do something. You got to do something. They've been slandering them for years and years and years. Okay, then finally we get a response from King Artaxerxes in verses 17 to 23. 
But we have to ask ourselves, why does the author do this? Why does he break the neat narrative to describe a hundred years worth of political intrigue and letters back and forth to the capital? And I think two main aspects of the text are going to help us to understand the author's intentions. First, we need to remember the original audience. Okay, Ezra and Nehemiah were likely compiled into this present form somewhere near the end of the 5th century BC, so right around the year 400. We know that because it had to be after the mission of Ezra, missions of Ezra and Nehemiah were complete, and Ezra and Nehemiah each came to Jerusalem somewhere in the 450s. We'll get there in a second. So it was probably compiled around 400 BC. 400 BC is about 140 years after the events of verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 140 years later, okay? So the original audience was not the people who were building the temple. By the time the original audience read this, they already knew the end of the story. They knew what was going to happen with the temple. They knew what was going to happen with building the city walls. They knew what was going to happen to Samaria and all of this political intrigue that the author was describing. So the question for us is, why write about it this way? Why not give us a nice, neat history? That's the first piece of evidence. It gives us the right perspective on this text. Now, second, what the author does not say is just as important as what he does say. He covers 100 years of Israel's history, and if all you had to go on was Ezra chapter 4, you would believe this is a meh, pretty boring 100 years. Yeah? All you have is some letters going back and forth and the temple's not being built. But that is not the case. Are you guys ready for another nerdy chart and timeline? Okay, just, uh, just push your glasses up and, and give your attention to the screen. We're going to go through another timeline. In verse 5, it brings us to the reign of Darius. Okay, Darius... He served as king from about 522 to 486. It doesn't mention anything in, in chapter 4 here, in verse 5, about the fact that in the second year of the reign of Darius, God sent prophets to encourage his people, okay? Haggai and Zechariah arrive in the second year of Darius. And then in chapter 6, it's actually Darius who orders the Sumerians to pay for the building of the temple. Now, you might be thinking, that's some pertinent information in this chapter, Okay, this is all about discouragement, all about the enemies. Why not tell us the good things God is doing in the midst of it? And then finally, during the reign of Darius, the temple project is completed in about 516 BC. Well, that seems like some important information to leave out of our timeline here. Chapter 4, Mr. Author. Let's go down to verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, now the author only tells us about the enemies of God writing a letter. Okay? But what else happened during the reign of Ahasuerus? Now, this is also Xerxes. Now, th this bit of information is for free, okay? That doesn't have anything to do with our timeline, but I just think it's amazing that th this is Xerxes. He's famous for losing the Battle of Thermopylae, okay? This is the guy. He's the other guy on the poster, okay? Spartans are dunking on his head. Th th this is the guy who, who loses to 300 or so Spartans, all right? But Ahasuerus is also when the story of Esther takes place. And the story of Esther ends in a massive victory for the children of God over whom? Their enemies. It, this is a chapter about enemies. And he doesn't tell us about Esther. And at the end, when Esther defeats Haman, they institute a feast, the Feast of Purim, to celebrate victory over their enemies. And that feast is still being celebrated to this day. So the original readers, they knew about the Feast of Purim. They had probably already been celebrating it for 50 years. So they knew he left it out. And then finally, the reign of Artaxerxes in verses 7 to 23. This is Artaxerxes I, okay? All we get, again, letters from the enemies. But in Artaxerxes' reign in the seventh year, Ezra the priest is sent to encourage the people of God. In the twentieth year, Nehemiah, who was actually Artaxerxes' very own cupbearer, asks for and receives permission to go back and rebuild the walls. So why? Why? Why did you tell us all the bad news and not give us any of the good news? Oh, he's trying to make a point. He's telling the original readers 
who were probably also facing difficult circumstances, that it has always been this way. Don't we always do this? You see, last week Ron talked about how some people at the, at the laying of the foundation of the temple, some people were, were discouraged. They were weeping because they could remember the glory of prior days. They remembered the glory of the prior temple. Okay, so he talked about how nostalgia for past victories in the kingdom can steal our energy and our zeal for the work at hand in the kingdom today. The original readers of Ezra 4 were vulnerable to the same things. You see, when they thought back over the last hundred years, it probably looked something like this. They thought back and they were remembering, they were pining for the days of Darius, right? When the government was supportive of their efforts and they were pining for the days of Esther when God's people won a great victory and they were pining for the days of Ezra when a gifted teacher was expounding the word of God with power and people's lives were changing and they were thinking about back to Nehemiah when God's people banded together in solidarity and rebuilt the city wall. The author is reminding them and he's reminding us, no, that's not all that there was to the story. There were enemies, there were opposition, and every single one of those victories came in the midst of a culture that was hostile to the kingdom of God. And that's the message that we need to hear. We can look back and we only remember the high points, but friends, if we look back at our history and our walk with the Lord through rose-colored glasses, we will lose our resolve for working in the present. Ezra chapter 4 is a warning that we should expect opposition in every age of the church and prepare ourselves accordingly. The worship team can come on up. How do we prepare ourselves? It'd be all too easy to send you guys out of here with a message that says something like this. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. There's going to be opposition. Don't be such a pansy. Get back to work. That's not the message of the church. That's not the gospel. You know, the book of Hebrews was written for just, just such a chapter as Ezra 4. Uh, the main, if you had to name a theme for the book of Hebrews, you, you, you could probably do worse than by saying the theme is perseverance. The writer is encouraging people to persevere in trial. And what does he have to offer them to persevere? What does he give them over and over and over again? He keeps saying the same thing over and over again. He says, look to Jesus. Early in Hebrews, he says, look to Jesus. He is better than the angels. You don't need to look to lesser spiritual beings to help you in this fight. Look to Jesus. Then he says, Jesus is greater than Moses. You don't need to place all your faith and trust in human leaders. Jesus is better than Moses by so much more as the builder of the house is better than the house itself. Then he says, Jesus is our great high priest. You need to come to God. The way you get to him is through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And then he said, Jesus inaugurated a better covenant. Okay, and finally, we get to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, and he says, Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Just have three very brief encouragements to leave you with today. How do we apply as or for to our lives well, first, isn't it obvious? If you're sitting here today and you're buying into a version of Christianity that doesn't include enemies, that doesn't include opposition, I just want to gently encourage you, no, no, let, let that rose-colored glasses fall away. Expect opposition. Both Ezra 4 and Jesus teach us to expect this. And if Jesus the author of our faith, suffered such hostility. Should we expect anything else? No. And two, friends, beware of compromise. Is this not the message of the day? Beware of compromise. 
This is an age-old tactic. Did you think that 2022 was the first time that the church was tempted to, to, to compromise its beliefs, to compromise God's word and make peace with the world? No, no. Right here, Ezra chapter 4, it's been happening a long, long time. Beware of compromise. Jesus did not compromise one inch. He, he was willing to die rather than disobey his Father in heaven. And we desperately need that kind of resolve. We're going to need some steel in our spines if we're going to make it through the next decade without putting down our tools and stopping the work because we're so discouraged. And finally, remember the gospel. There's always a separation between the church and the world, but it's a certain kind of separation. We're not permitted to hate the enemy. That's not what Jesus modeled for us. No, actually, the gospel reminds us that we were the enemy. That's what we were. We all once walked as enemies of the cross of Christ, and Jesus died in our place for our sins. So these two things, we stand firm. We do not compromise one letter of God's word before the clamoring culture. But we also love our enemies. The, the Great Commission goes forward when former enemies of the cross, who have been redeemed by the power of the cross, go out proclaiming the message that enemies can be forgiven. That leads to a certain kind of posture before the people of this world. Yes, the church has enemies, but the church is unique among all mankind. The church has been commanded to love them. Let's pray. Father, as we worship, as we stand and worship, would you cause the truth of your word from Ezra chapter 4 to work its way deep into our bones so that we would be a people who stand unashamed in front of a culture that wants us to compromise and so that we would be, among all people, the most gentle, the most loving, the most humble because we are aware that we too once walked as enemies and now it is our deepest hope that our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers would join us. In Jesus' name.